to the Workplace Bullying Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Namey, social psychologist and the co-founder and director of the Workplace Bullying Institute. For nearly 25 years at WBI, we've devised solutions for everyone, from bullied individuals and unions to employers and lawmakers. This podcast showcases the reality of workplace bullying and abusive conduct and related phenomena from the dark side of the world of work and society. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome. We're going to try something different for this podcast. We're going to turn over the reins of hosting to our great friend and colleague, David Yamada, law professor, Suffolk University in Boston. David? Hi, Gary and Ruth. Um, As Gary said, uh, I'm David Yamada, and I've been working with the doctor's name since the late 1990s on addressing workplace bullying uh, on my end, specifically towards the legal end. And it has led to a long time collaboration and friendship that finally, uh, or not finally, but concludes in, at this juncture in an interview with Gary and Ruth to talk about the origins of their work to combat workplace bullying and sort of the origin story of the Workplace Bullying Institute. Now, as many workplace bullying stories go, it starts at a very personal level. The work that the doctors Namey have been doing for years was uh, inspired or triggered. We can use a bunch of different verbs to to describe it, Uh, but it, it originated in Ruth's experience as a clinician in which she started to experience behaviors that they would label workplace bullying as they started to comprehend what was going on. So Ruth, Gary, welcome to your podcast. And I'm going to ask my dear friend, Ruth, Ruth, what happened that started you folks down this path in in terms of your own personal experience? Well, actually it was a very happy start I was living and working for Sheridan Hotels in Hawaii. I worked for two hotels. I was director of training and I loved my job, but I had a yearning to get a PhD. I had always wanted to do that with clinical psychology. And I prodded Gary and I prodded Gary and I said, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And finally, He said to me, okay, we'll go back to California and you can go to school. So we went back to Berkeley and I went to graduate school. After school, I got a job with a hospital and I really loved it. I felt safe and secure. And then I wanted to move closer to home. And that's where it started. I got three job offers and I took the closest one to home. And that's where I met Sheila. Yeah, Ruth, uh, briefly, geographically, where were you folks then? We were in Northern California. And we lived in a town called Benicia. And I wanted to live closer to that. So I got a job. I got a job in Vallejo. And nobody told me about this woman. Nobody said, beware of her. Watch out. She's a demon. Everybody knew, but nobody told me. 
Mm. So I went out and I started this job. And the first day she hugged me, beware of hugs. Um, everything was okay for about five days. And then it started. She started to say, you're not doing this right. Okay, how should I do it? Well, you're not doing it right. And that was the first clue. The second clue was when she got me in group and she'd say to the whole group, she'd say, Ruth, this isn't the way we do it. So after group, I'd say, Sheila, how do you think I should have done it? She said, well, you should know. Hmm. And you did know. Ruth transferred to that clinic after working for that company probably six years. So she was uh, a master clinician by then. She knew what she was doing. This was a woman who wasn't even up to Ruth's caliber of work. Good. But she never mm -hmm. told me ever what her standards were. I would go to the main master book and I would look in the book and I would go by the book. What did the book say for this clinic? And I would try that. It wasn't right. So this went on and on and on. I talked to my other colleagues and I said, what about this? And they said, oh, that's just Sheila. Hmm. So after this was happening for about three or four months, I had really had it. I had gone to the head of psychology in the department. And he couldn't give me any help. He said, well, you'll just have to work it out with Sheila. And I tried and I tried and I tried. And one day I had just had it. And I went into her office and I slammed the door and I said, you will not treat me this way anymore. And I slammed the door and I walked out. And about five days later, she came in with the head psychologist and the head psychiatrist and her. And they said, she will not give, you will not work here anymore. You are relieved of your duties. You are not to see patients. And they left. And that was the end of me working there. That was three o'clock in the afternoon. I looked on my schedule. I had no clients. I had mm. had clients before that. My schedule was empty. So I called Gary and I was crying and I said, what should I do? And he said, come home. And I said, I can't. I have a job. And he said, do you have a job? And I said, no. He said, come home. So I went home, and the next day, Gary cleaned out my office, and that was the end of my job. The next day, I called the EAP woman, and she said, come and talk to me. And I told, I poured out my heart. I said, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. She said, let me go to the administration, and I'll talk to them and get back to you. The next day, I called her, and I said, what happened? And she said, Oh, I can't tell you that. That's confidential. Oh, boy. That's right. Oh, 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 oh. oh, 
Ruth, may I make an observation that I, I, and maybe I should have picked up on this before because it's so profound. Um, so many of the lessons that we've learned about dealing with bullying at work were contained in the last few minutes of what you described. Uh, the futility of reaching out to someone's boss about their behavior and having it dismissed as a personality problem, um, confronting one's aggressor or bully and how that can backfire, and then going to a third party such as EAP or HR for assistance and finding that that too is going to oftentimes fall short. These are themes that we've been talking about for 20 years now between the three of us and our larger community of scholars and advocates. But we didn't know that then. We actually, Gary and I went and we hired a lawyer mm -hmm. and she said, well, there's no law against this. And so we fired the lawyer. Um, we didn't know what to do. I was actually shocked. I was thinking there is something wrong with me because as a clinician, I can't handle this. Finally, it was settled, but not because of the bullying, because we didn't even know what that was at that point. It was settled because there was a, they did something wrong in the procedure. It had nothing to do with bullying. I want to repeat that. So I got a small settlement. I can't say what it was because mm -hmm. I'm gagged, but there we went on our own separate ways to try to figure out what had happened. Ruth, were you processing this as a clinician at that point, or were you just too close to your own experience? I was too close to my own experience. Mm. Gary, I'm curious how you might have been processing it. Now, you're trained in social psychology, but uh, you know the gamut of psychology very well. How was this... Um, how was this registering with you as you were witnessing Ruth going through this and helping her as well? Gary, you are muted. I was just enraged. It was more as a husband, to tell you the truth. Um, they did this to my wife. She was sweet and nice and innocent and skilled, and I was hopping mad. I hounded the hospital administrator so much, she decided she took her retirement a year early. I just made her life miserable. I made HR's life miserable. I stupidly, naively, and uh, 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 without legal advice, threatened them with uh, the press and media coverage. I was going to call reporters. I didn't know. I was just, I was kind of out of control. But you know what had happened to Ruth? You asked about her handling it. She didn't. She was traumatized. Mm -hmm. And we didn't. Um, uh, she she was getting help from a from. I think we were really lucky that that psychiatrist got it. She knew trauma. Didn't oh, she? I had a wonderful psychiatrist who worked with me and she actually really helped me. But I still had all that shock that I was trying to deal with. And so her clinical skills, as you asked, David, could not be applied to herself as a case. 
It didn't yeah. matter one whit. She was just another bully target, as we would come to learn. But of course, back then, we didn't know. This is a very personal experience. And that's also true of all bullying, isn't it? You don't know anything about this until it happens to you. And I've always said, we can't wait on everyone to have to go through it. But anyway, this was our initial learning. So well, what we it, did is, oh, excuse me, David. I'll just quickly note, Gary, un unlike a lot of folks who have brought their experiences to loved ones and found a somewhat disbelieving audience, um, you knew that Ruth was coming from a place of truth and you tried to intervene. You were not the bystander who, you know, dove for cover, but rather someone who out of your love for Ruth and, and your uh, belief in, in what she was saying and going through and, and, and perceiving that you tried to jump in and intervene with some of these third parties. And there too, we saw how that can be uh, fr a fruitless task. So um, you did the right thing, but, and you might've been driven by your, your anger and your own pain for your wife, but you made the effort as well. So I just think that deserves to be acknowledged. The funny thing is, I knew nothing of what Ruth just told you in her recap of her narrative until the end. She did uh, all of that without my awareness. She was trying to, I, what are you trying to do? Protect me? What, why didn't you tell me till the end? I've because never... I was afraid he'd think I was a failure. I oh. was afraid he would think that there was something wrong with me. I was so convinced that, that there was something wrong with me. I felt well, that's bad. the shame. That's the shame was, in bullying. I was ashamed. I didn't think I thought I must not be a good therapist because I can't handle this. And I had been told in my earlier life that I was not a good person, that there was something wrong with me, that I couldn't do things. And that just exacerbated what I felt. It just made me feel worse. But I, let's go on because yeah. I think you get what that is. So yeah. I got bravely through most of that. And when I got to my senses, Gary and I sat down on the living room floor. Honest to God, that's what we did. And I looked at him and he looked to me and I said to him, what in God's name happened? What is this? And I said, okay, we've got this thing in our living room, this <laughs> box. And you think that that can tell us what it was? This you new internet thingy. <laughs> do you think that there's... <laughs> do you think there's something on this thing, this Google thing that can tell no, us? No, that's before Google. Oh, do you, okay. What year was this, by the way? Just okay. to center our audience here, and me too. 94, 95. Okay. For her direct experience, we settled. She got a severance within a year, which is quick for by, by all standards, um, which we negotiated since we didn't have an attorney with an external uh, defense firm. And what overcame Ruth's shame was, I want her to tell you the, the, the kind of the sense of justice she felt finally came from that defense attorney. High price San Francisco firm. Oh. What did he tell you? 
when it was all over, he handed me my check and I said to him, what in the world did I do wrong? Still in that shame model. Self-blame, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, you didn't do anything wrong. She's done this to many people. Bingo. Huh? Bingo. Yes. Yes. And I said, oh, my goodness. I'm not the only one. Now, that didn't make it right. Ruth uh, sought treatment later and foolishly a mental health person faxed the intake form to Sheila. (laughs) Thinking Sheila was her therapist as opposed to the boss who's responsible for the trauma. So we went through a lot of that kind of nonsense and she kept getting re-traumatized. But um, then we sat down and we said, what was this thunderbolt that cut through this family? What in the world? Let's go to that living room scene and you're sitting there at the computer going, what do we do now? What can we find? Is there anybody else in the world that this happened to? The world, yes. And we found that it was only in the world. We found uh, uh, England. Tim Field was an advocate. We found that it was originally called mobbing. Uh, There was a little bit of research done, and we didn't understand much about that. A book was written in Britain called Bullying at Work. We said, what's this mobbing, workplace bullying? Which is it? We found it in South Africa. South Africa. So we, we said, okay. We what are we going to do? And, and we didn't, my hero. No, we didn't do anything. Gary had a contract to do some consulting in Europe to make us a lot of money first. And so I went. And then when that ran down, we we were prepared. We said, now, who in America is doing this? And no one. No one. And we said. And I don't know why to this day we said, well, then it has to be us. So to ground us, you're in Sweden, you're talking about Heinz Lehmann uh, and his mobbing research. In Britain, you're talking about Andrea Adams, who wrote that short book on bullying and did those BBC podcasts, as well as Tim Field, who wrote his own book and had a website for a while, right? It was a huge website. It was yeah. the only thing. It was the biggest thing going on the internet at that time. Yes, he's a computer. Oh. He was a computer IT guy who had been bullied. He was a bully target, basically, but it was very thorough. So you've been going through what was the web back then and realized there is a void here in the fifty states. What what came next? we jumped into it gary said if nobody's doing it we're gonna do it yeah yeah we did i uh well i did and i remember ruth saying are you sure we want to do this you're you know you're teaching still university um you still get invited to do consulting things positive consulting things for organizations you really want to do this, but ever the realist. And I said, oh, hell no, we want to jump right in because we had our consulting website was Work Doctor. So I said, let's dedicate a portion of that website to this phenomenon. Now, what are we going to go with in America? Mobbing or bullying? And mobbing sounded paranoid to us. And so we said. No, Gary said when I was in (laughs) bed one night, he said. Go ahead. No, go ahead. 
He said, let's call it, go ahead. The campaign against workplace bullying. And I got up the next morning and I said, what? But We're was, not going to call it anything against. But I'd already created the new website. So <laughs> we were off and running. Uh, and we were against this destructive phenomenon from the start, without a doubt. But it was funny. And we chose bullying because we thought it would, from the very beginning, we said, we're going to need the media to jump on this. And just as they have for the children, the school bullying is started by Dan Olvius, also out of Scandinavia, right? And it had come to America and was used in so many schools. So we said um, bullying. At first, it was a carve out from the Work Doctor Consulting website. And then, oh, you're going to laugh at this. I, um, I did not want to purchase the domain workplacebullying.com because, honest to goodness, I said, this is the Brits started this and I don't want to step on their toes. Uh, it now sells for tens and tens of thousands of dollars. It's the only website domain workplace bullying I don't own almost. But it is an amazing thing that I had this this uh, moment of humility and that I could just kick myself over that. So we chose bullybusters.org and we were off and running as the campaign against Ruth's wishes about the name because she <laughs> names everything for us uh, and does so really well. But and then we wondered if people would come and they, oh, David, you found this for crying well, out loud. So this is around like 1997 now. Yeah, right? yeah, middle of 97. We've eight, just celebrating our 25th place. year. This, this podcast is recorded uh, on the event of uh, the occasion of our 25th anniversary. Yes. Wow. So this is uh, a momentous time to be looking back then. Uh, and I'll have more to say about what this has meant to so many people, but let's get back to our narrative here. You're, you're now launched with the name that Ruth didn't want, the Campaign Against Workplace Bullying. Uh, you have a website. You're starting to do interviews because that's how I found you. Uh, I think it was in 1998 that I first reached out to you folks. So we're talking about that real kind of... Uh, uh, I guess the the bubbling up of this work. Um, how did you first envision your work, and what kind of work were you folks doing in the initial stages of this endeavor? We wanted to find out if people would come, if there were other people in the United States that had had this experience, and they came in droves. Well, but they came because of that consulting gig. Having filled our coffers, albeit temporarily, um, we threw up a toll-free line, telephone line. And when you're the owner of the toll-free line, you pay the toll. Uh, and the callers don't. And people called us by the hour. We learned 6.30 in the morning till 10.30 at night. No one honored time, uh, time zones. And, and, that's, and we didn't blame them, but it immersed us in the dark side of the world of work. Now, for me, for Ruth, it was her personal experience getting re-triggered. And, and we didn't stop. We stopped counting. Ruth and I had 12,000 targets. Now, targets never talked to us in five-minute 
uh, calls. They were one hour calls. Yeah. We call them targets, not victims. They weren't victims of anything. They were targets of somebody who bullied them. And in the beginning, we'd get a call. And if it was a tearful caller, I just hand the roof to I hand the phone to Ruth. I said, here, this one's for you. You handle this one. Um, I called them Kleenex calls because uh, the tears were going to be flowing. But unbeknownst to me, again, we're learning all this from scratch. And I'm a guy who has no experience in being abused, seeing abused, living vicariously abused, having abuse or violence in my family. I didn't know nothing. I came with totally green, raw eyes that had rose-colored lenses, honest to goodness, and that certainly changed over the years. But the point is, I hadn't heard this kind of pain before, and I, Ruth, the masterful clinician, I thought she should handle the calls. And so I passed the phone to her constantly, and because uh, I was Mr. Fix-It, uh, I, being a male, I was gonna, I was gonna have a 27-step solution for every caller. And then I yep. started playing the game of, I can guess what, their boss is going to say next based on what I know. And Ruth used to just say, as I like to say in my talks, beat me about the hands and face, but she's never beaten me, um, at least to hospitalization level. <laughs> but anyway, no, she's never beaten me. And the point is, she would say, listen, just, just listen. Stop trying to solve it. Get two messages across. And she, she drilled this into me, and, and it became our mantra. From the very beginning, targets, you are not alone. And two, you did not cause your circumstances. It's not because of you that these things happen. So we got better at listening. But I said, see, I would call it now, looking back, anecdotal research by the tens of thousands of cases. We talked to more targets than I dare say anybody in the world, clearly more than academics ever have. And, but it gave us the 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 outlines of this phenomenon and every time we thought we knew it all a caller would describe their bully's newest cruelest innovative way to harm and then our jaws would drop again and it's the kind of phenomenon it was but that was it we did the toll-free line and that's when oprah called tell us about that and then i want to circle back to ruth because she was doing as you said, the Kleenex calls. Do Ruth first, because it's okay. We'll 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 get to to Oprah in, in yeah. a minute. But Ruth, you'd gone through your own very difficult experience. Uh, where, where you were getting therapy for your situation, but then you're also put in this position. I mean, you folks were not offering psychological or psychiatric counseling, but you were like a hotline, and so. How were you doing with this uh, when you fielded those difficult calls? Well, boundaries were hard. I had to establish boundaries, but these people were hurting so badly. And I had to say to them, you have to think about yourself. I would say, you know, you have to think about leaving your job. And they would say, but I can't leave my job. And I would say to them, but you have to leave your job. And they would give me all these reasons they Mm -hmm. couldn't leave their job. And I would say to them, 
How are you feeling? Well, I don't feel very good. And I'm very, they wouldn't say I'm very depressed, but they would explain to me all the reasons that I knew they were depressed. And I would say to them, if you had diabetes, would you go to the doctor and take care of it? And they would say, why, of course. And I would say to them, you're describing me all these reasons that you should go to the doctor. And they would say, yes. And I would say, shouldn't you take care of that? And they would say, yes. And I said, so why don't you leave your job and take care of it? But they didn't want to hear that, David. They, mm -hmm. they didn't need their job. I do understand that. But it's so hard to get through to people that staying in your job is the most hazardous to your health. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to them and they would circle back and circle back and calls lasted about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And it was very hard to say goodbye, but I would have to cut them off and say, I'm really sorry, but I have to say goodbye now. And you need to find a therapist, somebody you can talk to face to face and work this out. Or if you don't work it out, somebody who can listen to you week after week and help you sort this out. Sometimes it works. Sometimes they get mad at me, but, you know, I had to help them as much as I could over a phone call. And yeah. I couldn't do therapy with them. That's not what I was doing. I was being a helpline. Yeah. This, again, themes that come out that we have been seeing played over and over again that you folks were learning. First, there's no such thing as the five-minute conversation with a bullying target an hour sometimes that's that's generous right um, secondly we know that many folks remain in their jobs a lot longer than they should that's a common pattern that we've seen over and over again and thirdly that even those on the support events sometimes get some of the anger that targets might have out of their experience. And even though you are trying to really coach them to, to take their situation into their own hands and, and get some help, uh, the pushback that you might get personally for trying to guide them in the right direction. And that's very difficult to field when you're just trying to give somebody a helping hand. But we've seen those phenomena over and over again. And I've you know, experienced it in a fraction of what you folks have, but I certainly know what it's like to have those sometimes, I think three hours is my record for a one sit down session with somebody mm -hmm. who said, can I just stop by and talk to you for a little bit? And then the day's over, but I can only imagine what it would have been like to do this for weeks and months on end. Um, but let's, let's take that and, and then go to the point where all of a sudden, you folks are starting to get more and more attention for your work. And as Gary just mentioned, Oprah calls. Gary, would you like to tell us about that? I think what blew the lid off the silence. And you know, we share so much with the domestic violence movement. 
um, breaking the silence is one of their themes. And so that's certainly one of ours, too. Uh, but the silence was broken uh, Labor Day, 1998, USA Today. I remember a big that. article, big article. Um, and, and they featured us in our work. And we even took the graphics. They even sent us the graphical art, the artwork they created for that. And that became the cover of our first book, by the way. We used that, and a guy was able to transform that into our book cover. So that launched us shortly after that. So that was September. Um, Oprah planned a show. They contacted us. They wanted to do a show in November um, on workplace bullying featuring us. And back then, the Oprah show it was a seven-week run-up of constant contact, emails, phone calls, people to put on, uh, aspects of the phenomenon to feature, let Oprah, you know, Oprah has to be the star. She is the star. And it was so funny. The, our tickets were booked for a Wednesday taping. The Friday prior, Mike, the senior producer, called me and he said, um, Oprah sat in on the production meeting. I said, oh, just now she joins the process. He says, yeah, she only comes in at the end. She would like you to um, reform a workplace bully uh, on camera, on stage, up in front. I said, now you see, now we didn't know what we know now, 25 years later, to the, the level that we know now, the depth of knowledge. But I was smart enough in 1998 to say that's going to be impossible. But I was stupid enough to also say, gosh, if we do that, the guy's going to cold cock me. Then you're no better than Jerry Springer. And then he's going to throw a chair, click, phone hung up, flights canceled, no Oprah appearance. They did the show without us with all of our material and all of our planning without Gary and Ruth. But, but bless her heart, Oprah had something called her Angels Network, and that's what's she sent us thousands of callers that cost us all that money and time. But looking back, I don't begrudge him because you know what came from all of those calls, David? Pattern and practice. We could really nail this phenomenon. And we really came to understand it. And it really is what put the health harm. Those calls put health harm in. Mm -hmm. And subsequently, I'll just say this way, jump way up to 2007. Same thing happened with Dateline, NBC. They followed us for a year, shot a lot of video, did a, an extensive four-camera shoot with an interview with Ruth and Gary. Uh, but I testified in a trial. I'd just begun my expert witness work with the first trial in Indianapolis. And not only did it cost us an ongoing contract, it turns out that NBC was so curious, they needed to talk to that guy, the, the uh, defendant in that case, the, they got the defendant on tape, and that allowed the attorney to threaten NBC, and that show never aired. So our run-in with major media, it was great. I mean, lots of Today shows, Good Morning America's and that. Back when they cared about bully targets, it was a human interest story, not a mm -hmm. business story, human interest, which is good. Um, but um, they haven't helped enough. They don't really get it. So the media is too corporate friendly, yada, yada, yada. So when they call now or something, I'm totally unenthused and that they can do anything good to help. But they don't call like they used to. 
Anyway, that was way well, back. That was 98. Yes. Gary, big picture observation that both of us have experienced at times is that we find that larger institutions get very threatened when we get into the heart of bullying as a form of abuse, as opposed to talking about bullying as manners and incivility. Um, and, and facing that behavior uh, in the mirror can, I think, be very threatening to some of these larger organizations because, as we know, those behaviors are very much present in some of those places as well. And I, I've seen a consistent pattern over our, uh, our our friendship, our association, where you get too close to that hot button and people just don't want to go in that direction. So uh, maybe that's something we can visit a little later in our conversation as well. But let's go back to those late 90s, 1998. Things were bubbling. I remember that's around the time I reached out to you folks to talk about the legal stuff, which we'll, we'll discuss in another podcast. But also around that time, you were reaching out to other academics and practitioners to kind of build the brain trust of the work you were doing. Could you say a little bit about that and some of the, the pioneers that you folks met and worked with and many of whom continue to be part of this circle today? Now, this clearly was a European phenomenon. Europeans studied primarily Scandinavian driven, actually. But then there were people on the continent, Zeterdaff, German, um, uh, the, the British Charlotte Rayner, was not yet a PhD, and she reached out to us. We know so many of the the now the now retired academics who were pre-docs back then who reached out to us, and it was it was quite flattering and uh, and touched me. Duncan Lewis and Charlotte Rayner in in uh, in Britain, but it, we were aware of the work Helgi Hole and Stolly Einerson. Um, they were already on the on the research map, but in the U.S., there were, we only found two Americans: Lorley Keishley at Wayne State, who was actually a Canadian, came out of Guelph University, and worked across the river in Detroit. And she was doing this work. She had a a major article, ninety eight, um, a literature review in which she had put together, oh, I'd say fifty, sixty studies of emotional abuse and she called it emotional abuse because as she said in the podcast where i interviewed her they were launching a new journal of emotional abuse so that became the seminal title article for the whole journal but we found it and we thought wow this is out there so we reached out to laura lee and later uh we would uh attend conferences together and co-present together i think uh, uh, public health uh, conference where we met Judy Richmond, um, a, a labor uh, researcher at University of Illinois, Chicago, and then her fledgling graduate uh, assistant, Kathy Respenda at the time. So we had that. Joel Newman was a social psychologist. Actually, he was quite a character and just loved Joel. Uh, had come out of the Navy and uh, was just doing starting a regular work life. And then for some reason, he got a bug to be an academic and went to grad school. And he was a social psychologist. And he was working in the field of aggression. So he was bringing, with Laura Lee and the emotional abuse, he was bringing the theoretical angle of aggression. And they were paired up in co-writers. 
they did a marvelous project with the VA that we always admired. We thought that was very forward. That was in the early 2000s. And then that was, they've written it up, you know, in the journal in 2004, 2005. But they were the, they were the only game in town when we started. So, yes, the American experience was very lean. Well, we'll get to where that started to expand a bit. But I also want to trace, and maybe this is, I think it's more than just labeling. It, it represents kind of a shift in, in uh, public presence. The campaign against workplace bullying would soon morph into the Workplace Bullying Institute. What went beyond, behind that decision and what substantive things occurred when you made that change or as you made that change? Well, since its inception, the campaign uh, at Ruth's Prodding needed a different name, but we were able to effect that change in 2001 when we we had to move. And um, we moved from California, the Bay Area, to Bellingham, Washington, because of a reality of the American uh, marketplace. We mm -hmm. needed health insurance. And mm -hmm. I had been... A uh, professor, I was an academic, uh, really teaching from 77, se well, 79, uh, and all the way up through 94, 95 when this happened to Ruth. And then we dedicated ourselves full time to this cause. So I hadn't taught since 94. And Ruth said, it's time to get back on the bike, big boy. Let's go. We <laughs> need health insurance. Do it. We found a two-year contract. We needed a social psychologist, a little regional university, and in a beautiful town that we knew nothing about. But Ruth's best friend had moved 20 miles south of there uh, from California, and she says, "Oh, come up, you'll love it up here." And actually, we did. And um, I taught at Western Washington, and now I had students. Now I had volunteers. Now I could, now we could do so much more. In fact, I immediately with students said, I want to start running online surveys. Let's figure out how to do that. And so I, we agreed. It was time to let go campaign. And it became the uh, more academic leaning workplace bullying institute. I know it's pretentious at the time, but thanks to those students and thanks to the staff, we were going to then be able to pick up there in Bellingham, we became quite prolific. And um, I want to talk about them when you get a chance, because they, yeah. they were everything to us, everything. I'm, I'm going to uh, take us one step back in our chronology, because I think I might have kind of skipped over the, the timeline a bit. But I thought that one of the most important transitional oh, events yes was going. the Oakland Conference, right? This Hopefully was in, macro, yes. in 2000, right? Uh, workplace Bullying 2000. You folks rented out... Um, uh, no, some, no, it was donated. It was a donated. state agency right. had befriended us and okay. loaned us their auditorium. Go ahead. So, and uh, this was uh, a, a chance for me, I remember, to meet all these wonderful people, not only in the U.S., but internationally, uh, you folks were able to get to come to Oakland and we were sharing our work together. Why don't you give us the story behind that? Some of the names uh, who were 
part of that group and many of whom have continued to be leaders in this subject matter area. Go ahead. My gosh. Uh, well, you came. <laughs> yeah, there was Noah Davenport, who was, um, I think she was Swiss, was she not? Um, but was living in Iowa and she had written a little book on mobbing. And that was that was good. And we had known about her. We invited her. Um, and then the Europeans came out of maybe out of a fear that we do it wrong in America, but not as it turns out after we met them all. It was the most generous act we could have imagined. We had no funding, David. Zero. Zero. The state had loaned us an auditorium. The Berkeley coffee uh, maker Pete's that helped launch Starbucks with their beans donated coffee. Um, we were trying. Uh, we had no money, and we put up probably a half dozen of the, the the visitors, the the speakers from around the world at our house, because there was no money to house them in hotels. Hopefully, their institutions paid for travel or what whatnot. But they came. We had the Canadians. Um, uh, See, Ken Ken Westies. Westies. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes. Who. Uh, was an academic who was bullied, had written his book on uh, basically a satire, well, what? not satire, uh, but yeah, written. It was a little bit of a, a satire. A satire, telling administrators how to crucify a professor, yes. And then, of course, he went on with really important work to um, document mobbing in the academe. Stolly. No, he didn't come. There were other, no, Stolly didn't come. Let's see, I we think met, we met Stolly in Australia. So Sue Baxter was there. Sue Baxter um, was the well, what we had hoped for, and we had invited um Heinz Lehman, the international pioneer. But he sadly passed from cancer in late 1999. So he wasn't able to make it. His English translator for his books, including the book called titled The Suicide Factory, that had totally angered the Swedish government because of its frank approach to the fact that work can kill people. Sue came. She's totally familiar with his work. And she had been one of his original patients in uh, 62 patients in his original clinic from which he derived the phenomenon of mobbing. So we, I felt we were at the source. Sue met with Ken. And then from that came the English translation rights to all the books going to Ken and his mobbing um, encyclopedic website that he managed at the time. So we put those people together. Our Australian friends from the Beyond Bullying Association came, Michael, Michael Sheehan, and he, um, well, he introduced us to Vegemite, which is an experience we could forget. But the point is, these wonderful people came, and it's like, we want to help you Americans get this right. And it was the most, what was it, two days? Well, I think it was two days, two days of just immersion. Oh, and our son, game. we bought sandwiches and our son ran sandwiches to people. <laughs> it was amateur day, but it was wonderful. And I do remember CNN covered it. And of course, the local press. By then, the local press had discovered us. <laughs> we were always on local TV. And I think we had not yet started the national TV thing. But that <coughs> that really helped us. You're right. And I remember uh, also, I mean, Joel and Laura Lee were there. Joel Newman and Laura Lee Kishley. Um, Andy Ellis, didn't he 
Uh, oh, yes, our, our British friend, yes, advocate yeah. Tim Field had passed, also had passed from cancer. And we were noticing this cancer cluster. Andre Adams passed from cancer. And we're noticing the pioneers were dying young from cancer. Could that have been related to the the, the uh, vicarious trauma they experienced? Um, well, I came to know a lot about that later myself, but mm-hmm. long, but not cancer. Um, but yes, that was just a wonderful event. Now, if I recall, that was summertime, perhaps, mm-hmm. because your event at Suffolk that you launched for the legal community was that fall, wasn't it? Something like that. Yeah. yeah, I think so. So yeah. we did, we Fall came, then we went down. back east and we met a whole different cast of characters yeah. uh, in the legal world uh, that you were trying to introduce to this phenomenon. Look, we're all breaking ground. The, the legal profession, because of the absence of a law, the legal profession was almost caught totally unaware. Jump to 2022 when or is it just last year? I don't remember when we did our ABA webinar to uh, to lawyers. Lawyers experience this too. Everybody yeah. experiences this. But professionally, they don't really have an acquaintance with, an awareness of bullying. So you, were, you broke ground with the legal profession, and we were trying to get the American population in general, the public, to understand because even though we had just begun, we thought, with awareness and earlier recognition, people could minimize their health harm. Because right from the beginning, from all those calls, we pinpointed health is the most damaging outcome. Yes, you may lose your job. Yes, that's horrible in terms of your identity. But if the job kills you, to use layman's term, if the job kills you, there's no other opportunity. So health harm came out of that very much. And that has remained a consistent theme as well. It, it this, this conversation is just reminding me so vividly of how um, enduring some basic understandings have, have been, uh, that they've been tested against now 25 years of research and experience, and a lot of those core, almost experiential findings through the work that you folks started and helped to launch still remain uh, very much uh, accurate pieces of information and advice and understanding this phenomenon. So uh, those conversations that you had with hundreds of people, I agree, they were their own research study. It's just that you folks were doing it while you were helping them at the same time. And it really did help to shape our understanding of what's going on here. Um, so I, I do want to, with with that conference from 2000 is kind of a a sidebar. Let's return now to the point where you folks are back, or I have moved to Bellingham. You're doing this two-year teaching gig, but you're also getting the Workplace Bullying Institute off the ground. And I guess I want to ask Ruth at this point, just Ruth, what were your thoughts about where this was going? Uh, Because Gary was really starting to drive a lot of this. what did you think of what was starting to transpire before us? Well, <clears throat> we started and Gary moved into the living room. And I had no living room. <laughs> and I was sick and it was, of it. And it was next to the bedroom. 
And my voice is so low and so tiny and so inside. <laughs> and yeah. I had to talk to people on the East Coast at very early hours of the morning. Hence, go ahead. So <laughs> what I did was I was just walking around one day. You know how you walk through the neighborhood? Mm -hmm. And there was a house for sale down the street. And I wandered in the open house. And it was a pretty nice house. But downstairs in the daylight basement, it had this huge room. And Ruth thought, this room is two stories down from the bedroom. And it would make a wonderful office. So I trotted down to the to our house, which is only seven houses down. Yeah, seven doors down. And I walked in and I said, we're going to buy another house. <laughs> and Gary said, no, we're not. We're looking. Were we looking? <laughs> anyway. And five months later, we were in the new house. And Gary had his own office in the bottom. And it was wonderful. It was big and we had desks and we could hire staff. We could only hire staff because I want to go back to a comment David made earlier. We were, I had a 20 year career teaching and we had already been consulting and making money from consulting. We thought we knew the answer to workplace bullying. We had a product or set of services that employers needed to make this, to stop this thing. So we were, we naively believed that if we just provided a rational business case, employers would understand this and that we'll be able to simultaneously do the help side to the bullied targets, but in the long run, help many more people by getting their employers to change their culture and, and, do all of that. And we knew how to make that happen. Trouble was, it was, we were way ahead of the marketplace, uh, even to this day, uh, only early adopting organizations uh, give a hoot. But we, that caused financial strain that also drove the move. So we, when we got to Bellingham and I'm teaching again, suddenly there is now interest in my speaking services. Uh, and by unions too, primarily Canadian unions. American unions were always stuck on the what happens when bullying is done by one of our members and they're frozen, they're paralyzed. Canadian, number unions, number. Canadian unions were so progressive. And I travel, I was in Canada constantly I, from Vancouver Island, Victoria, to the farthest reaches of Gander. Um, well, where they from far away, the Broadway play, uh, uh, way out there, Newfoundland, and all of that, and um, and every province within. So I was, we were, I was getting paid work, and that's what fueled the addition of these wonderful staffers. Now we're going to turn from a mom and pop operation into basically a prolific machine, an information generating helping people machine. So in order to do that, um, the first hire was not a tech person, but everyone after that was a tech person. When original Noel left us for family things, 
we decided to hire, we went to Craigslist. Who knew back then? That's where you hired people. But I've, we hired a bunch of technologically savvy people, young people, a graphic artist coming out of college, new, new graduate of the college where I was teaching. And she revamped the old, old website and made us look modern. Mm-hmm. You couldn't spell worth a darn. And we continued for many years to find her misspellings on different pages. But we did. We, 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 <laughs> she converted me from a 700-page website as the old professor to a more modern look. And I've only had a third wave of that, actually. We only had three iterations. But uh, her name was Noelle Stransky. Noelle Stransky was first. Then we got tech support from a guy, a young guy named Dave Phillips who interviewed and we said, do you know this, this thing and that thing and this PHP thing and that, and then we, cause we really need this to move into the future. And he said, no, but I can learn it. And we thought, well, that's pretty bold. And he lived up to his promise. He is an autodidact. He taught himself whatever we needed to know, threw himself into the cause 110%. And to this day, he's still our tech support, though we're doing so remotely, aren't we all now? But uh, Dave allowed us to do to create our own Survey Monkey website, which allowed us to do our own surveys online with the professionalism that we needed. Uh, and so we just started, and t- we ran forty nine online studies from mm-hmm. that. Now those samples are not nationally representative; they're they're called self selected samples. But what they did is that allowed us to explore. Pretty much, well, 49 aspects of targethood. And so the people who came to a website with workplace bullying in its title, we now know are 97% bullied targets, self-described. And we surveyed them. And we got a lot out of that. Um, Then we hired, uh, Dave had a friend who knew a counselor who had been mistreated and was looking for opportunities. And her name is Jesse Brown. And we, this is an important piece to add to our, our cadre. Jesse yeah. came in as a licensed counselor. She worked with Ruth for a month or so, taking calls and heard how Ruth handled the coaching calls so that you could distinguish them from doing therapy. And Jesse then, we put her in her own room and shut her and gave her her own door. She's the only one that had her own door. Because I don't know what it is about the inside voice. It still found a way to wrap around that hallway, travel 15 feet down and interrupt things. But um, I was in the room with Noel and Dave and later Daniel, who then became an ophthalmologist. And uh, so at most, we had a staff of four and we were a functioning machine. I think we were a great workplace. Um, and I was making, no bullying. we were making enough money to sustain them and give them health insurance. And they were, they were just wonderful targets. Um, and now we had Jesse to take calls and then Jesse morphed that into her, um, her counseling service for targets that exists to this day. She's still the WBI coach, though. She's a, a practitioner living in Seattle. She has an independent uh, mental health practice, counseling practice, but she still is our number one helper for targets. I continue to refer people to Jesse. 
Um, she is not only super smart in understanding the dynamics of all this, but remains one of the best people that you'll ever run into. And um, I, I think the addition of her to your team just really made a difference. And it, boy, I've heard such good feedback from people mm-hmm. whom I've referred uh, to Jesse uh, over the years. Uh, uh, I, I think like you, um, she has literally saved lives over these years. She's and, a stellar uh, person. And for the yep. first time, we felt comfortable um, passing the torch for handling the calls because I was then on the road all the time. And so that allowed, I'm trying to get the income to keep the thing going. And she then, but we didn't have a drop off that way. So we were uh, in service to bully targets. Our main function, our purpose has always been serve bully targets. But we want to generate revenue by helping unions, by helping uh, organizations who, who care at all. And then 2008, it, uh, something catapulted us even further. It's just another addition. And it's back to Ruth. Tell them about what happened in the Montreal International Conference in 2008. Oh, in 2008, I was sitting there and I thought, what in the world can we do to make some more income? And I thought... No, that wasn't it. That wasn't (laughs) it. It was... They had put me on the board of the international organization. We said, holy crap, people know about our work. In 2008, we still weren't sure. Yeah, we didn't know. And she said, maybe we need to train people then because that's what we do. Maybe we need to educate a whole group of other people and generate revenue. Go ahead. (laughs) So I was sitting there in a lecture and I wasn't paying a lot of attention and I was doodling and I thought what if we came up with an idea to educate people and I thought professionals and I thought we could do this and then this and then this and then this and I could have Gary do it with little input from me no that's not true in the beginning not in the beginning. We did it. We did it. We did it together. We did it together and we could charge for it and make income and spread the word and spread how we did it. So people wouldn't be doing it, quote, the wrong way, unquote. In other words. Or having to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Like people taught us how to not reinvent the wheel. People came to us in Oakland and said, let us help you. And we wanted to say to others, let us help you. So what did you create? Because she names everything. Oh, I created the university. Workplace Bullying University. University. Right. That curriculum then was derived. We wrote it. That you know, very quickly. And we did the first offering in the fall of 2008 in Bellingham. And um, let me go back a little bit. Gary and I had always done workshops together. And the crazy thing about that was 
we worked hand in hand, back and forth. I would do this, he would do that. And the funny thing we were getting, which really disturbed me, was they would come to us afterwards and they would say, you know, he's bullying you. And I would say, what? I bully him. I interrupt him all the time. I'm always there to say, no, Gary, it's like this. And it was really disturbing to me. So I thought if we do this university, then maybe I'll have my part and he'll have his part. But we still interrupted each other. Well, Gary has his so-called outdoor voice, which he thinks is an indoor voice. So that can uh, make a difference in the decibel levels. But uh, I've seen for many years how you two play off of each other. And it is a genuine partnership. But to, to just kind of crystallize for anyone who's listening to this and isn't familiar with it, Workplace Bullying University is what I think one of your signature contributions to the world of knowledge and understanding. Um, it's a, uh, a graduate level uh, workshop, basically, in understanding the dynamics of workplace bullying, how to respond to it with insights for professionals of all types who might be dealing with these behaviors. Uh, that includes therapists, HR folks, union folks, uh, attorneys, uh, labor advocates, the whole realm of people who want to incorporate this work as part of their own practices. And having attended this twice, I can also attest that it is just substantively deep and superb. And so I'm glad that we can kind of put that out there as one of the signature contributions of what you folks continue to do. Um, I want to also just mention that, uh, that simultaneously with all this stuff going on, uh, as I said, we're going to get more into the legal aspects of this in some future podcast when Gary comes back and interviews me. But keep in mind, listeners, that um, Gary especially was actively organizing on behalf of this healthy workplace bill, this anti-bullying legislation that we've been doing. And so that was ongoing. That's, that's, that is a longer and later conversation, but obviously um, requiring a lot of your time. That was the about, uh, let me stop you right there briefly. The way our time was divided in those halcyon years was third for legislative advocacy, uh, a third for going out and speaking and training, uh, and then a third uh, university. We would do that four, sometimes five times a year live. Um, now it's less frequent, the university is, but it's definitely more intensive. I... Um, I, I've always made it research-driven, and I constantly update it. And at the time of this taping, we're between two uh, delivery sessions in 2022, and I just updated it with the newest, newest findings. My gosh, the neuroscience and all that. But then I attach a research library to it, include it, and that is now up to 862 articles. So at the original, original, we printed 80 articles in a binder. <laughs> hard copy i remember and getting a copy of that we yeah. can't do that and then it became discs and then it now it's thumb drive but um so we're very proud of university you're absolutely right i totally forgot the legislative advocacy took a lot of time back then 
Uh, not so much now, but like you say, we'll talk about that in a in a sequel when we yeah. do the talking about the legal. But our life was very very full. Uh, and in two thousand, before we go, go into that further into the narrative, this is around the time that the partnership with Zogby comes in, right? And you're starting to do international surveys. 2007, the national survey. Yeah, time. why don't you say a little bit about that? Because these remain amongst the most authoritative periodic surveys that researchers, whether practitioners or scholars, can access. Why don't you say a few words about that, and then we'll move on in our, our story. What tickles me the most, or pleases me the most, is that our national surveys are so often cited. And... Back in the day when we used to track media citations, you know, uh, I, I used to track, I just can't do it now, and I don't. We come up in all kinds of venues. 2007 survey was born from a client in Iowa, and people will actually uh, recognize the school district, Sioux City, because that was the scene of the documentary that made it to actually Oscar nomination called Bully, but it was about the school bullying in Sioux City schools. Well, as it turns out, the filmmaker was following us to Sioux City, and he filmed us for his documentary on workplace bullying, and then he stayed afterwards to meet with the student bullying people, and that's what became his documentary. He just felt he couldn't go out on a limb on that workplace thing. But long story short, the uh, woman, the Waite Institute for the Prevention of for Violence Prevention, Cindy Waite, W-A-I-T-T, um, had a foundation that her brother had started from gate money from Gateway Computers. I think that was the company, and he was a billionaire and all. But she was running the foundation, and she fell in love with our work. She fully funded the first national study in two thousand seven. We contracted with Zogby. Um, it's now known as Zogby Analytics. I forget their name at that time, but it's always been Zogby. And we have since run five national studies because you see a national. Tell them why you connected with Zogby. It's no, a neat no, story. I don't think so. Yes. Uh, Tell him why. I'm half Lebanese and I had a conversation with uh, the person at Zogby and they said, oh, our owner would really be. He would be honored then to help you. And just oh. because of that ethnic connection, because I have my own uncle Tanus, if you think, okay, you, I'm aging myself, Danny Thomas show. Okay, forget that. But you do know about St. Jude, right? That was founded by Danny Thomas. Okay, so anyway, one of the most famous Lebanese people. But um, they um, were kind to us. We ran the first study in 2007. Uh, I wrote the survey. And we then have, we can benchmark that prevalence question throughout the uh, uh, four subsequent times to track the prevalence of bullying in the U.S. The, and here's where you come in, David. When we began our work and defined bullying, not only did I not want to buy WorkplaceBullying.com to step on toes, I was worried about using the term abuse. And in you put it in the draft language for healthy workplace bill. And from then on, I've been using abuse. So we put abusive conduct in the uh, prevalence question and uh, starting in 2014. 
So we did them in 2007, 2010, 2014, 2017, and 2021. We just completed the last one in 2021. And they have been then crowdsource funded uh, since then. And, and with WVI paying about half. Uh, but people have been very generous. Those national studies are the only ones that use a, a nationally representative stratified random sample. I can't do that at the website. I can't ask bully targets about prevalence of bullying. It'd be 100%. It's, but when we got the national, and when, when Ruth and I were doing all the calls in the beginning, we were positive that it was all woman on woman to show you how grabbing a part of the elephant uh, huh. can, mistake, can mislead you to uh, understanding there's a whole elephant, you're only holding the tail. So in this case, we only got a partial view when we saw the woman on woman. That turns out that's only about a fifth of all the bullying. And the vast majority of the bullied, uh, the, the perpetrators of bullying are men. It's 65-35 split. 35% are women. Now, women are especially harsh on women and have a preferential, uh, uh, well, they show a preference toward bullying other women, 65-35 to male. But um, see, we had not, you need that national picture is what I'm saying. And the national pollster gave it to us. And they did it again in uh, 2021. So uh, in another two or three years, we, we shall move forward. The last uh, survey um, comparison gap between 2017. 2017 was just when Donald Trump had taken office. And the 2021 was done the week of the week after uh, inauguration of Joe Biden. So we perfectly bracketed in that four-year period the Trump administration um, bullying writ large and its impact, and it shot up from 19% to 30% prevalence, you see. And then we asked the question, has, has the uh, public uh, coarsening of the discourse uh, and talking to one another and the willingness to show hate so openly trickled into the workforce? And 58% of the people said, yeah. So it allowed us to ask that kind of a question. But um, so maybe what we'll do is we'll wait until the next election time and try and have it done uh, that January. Well, that would be very useful. I also just really have to endorse the fact that these surveys uh, perform a function that most academics can't do because of resources. When you're able to tap into the resources of, of Zogby Analytics, one of the major international pollsters around, they can do work that a small sample size of graduate students or uh, a small geographic sample can't do. And so therefore, I, there's a reason why those surveys are, are quoted so often. And I just wanted to, to circle us on that because I think it's another unique contribution uh, that you folks have been making. But let me turn it back over to you because Gary, in, in planning this conversation, we kind of had a run up of events up to 2015 and then kind of a shift in focus. And I'm going to let you and Ruth take it from this point. I'll continue to interject and shape but I know that there's some things that you want to say and get back to that chronology a bit. Things changed in 2015. Um, the bottom fell out financially 
for us uh, for WBI. We had had a we had, had a great run from basically 2001 to through 2014, but then it had resources grew leaner, and we shuttered the office. And personally, Ruth and Gary lost the house, and I had already had a health setback in. 2003. Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about that was exciting also when we got to Bellingham early. Um, I was teaching and I had created the first college course on bullying, called it Psychological Violence at Work. Okay. Got approval from the dean. And so I ran it. And then I ran it. I was a two year contract. So the second time I ran it was going to be the summer session, 2003. And a pre doc future prolific publisher expert, Pam Lukin Sandvik, had written us and said she wanted us to do a summer internship with us. And we didn't know what that meant or how, how that, what that would look like. But she came in 2003 and rented an apartment in Bellingham. And I remember uh, the first time she sat at our dining table, this was the birth of university five years later but i started reeling off things about workplace bullying until poor pam's eyes glazed over and ruth and said, i said stop have you no heart <laughs> have you no heart sir look at her you're killing her let her alone let this be spread over the summer she i said i don't know i just got excited she was there and we Pam is another salt of the earth person. Pam then becomes the most prolific American publisher in workplace bullying. She gets her doctorate in communications. Again, coming from a non-academic world into the academe like Joel Newman years prior, decades prior. And she comes in and um, she gets bullying because she had been bullied. So she makes it her doctoral dissertation topic at Arizona State. She teaches her graduate advisor, who knew nothing about it at the time, who now claims expertise in bullying. Uh, so fascinating how that works, right? But Pam uh, then went to, she had two college assignments, and she retired from uh, North Dakota State, I think. Um, and she's retired now. And she wrote a book uh, summarizing her decade of research. She's done the, fa she just always named her studies nightmares, demons, and slaves. I just think of the share song, right? And and stuff like that. So <laughs> Pam I know what song you're talking about. Yeah, Which yeah, yeah. But Never it's, mind, it's a on. study that I put into university all the time because she had people draw a person a picture or describe in metaphors uh, with words uh, their bullying phenomenon. That's brilliant if you think about it. But she's also she did some heavy theoretical work too. So we love Pam. And we've always felt bonded to Pam as closely as with you. And so I'm teaching the summer course and she's observing and I just have a bad time of it. And I get quadruple bypass surgery. Uh, and Pam finishes teaching the course for us. And she's there for Ruth. Again, a reason for our support for Pam. She was there for Ruth. So I def definitely wanted to get that in because Pam is, uh, I don't want Pam to go unmentioned. So in 2014, 
times are now lean. The good times are over. Our workers are, uh, Jesse's married and moved, moved off to Seattle. Um, the Daniel, a young fellow, goes into um, professional school. Uh, Noelle's gone. She's gone off to Microsoft and then on to great, greater things. Um, and um, so we let that, we had to let the house go. But we said, how are we going to continue this work? And so here we are seven years later. It has not discontinued. COVID actually became the reason for a new expansion, a recommitment to taping targets and having targets tell their stories, continuation of university. I had recorded in the prior years a podcast series of me do, doing tutorials and just teaching targets, encouraging them, giving them snippets of hope and, and information. Um, so I refined that, put that on the website, and now I've launched a new podcast series of which this is a part um, an interview-based one. Um, some people came to us frustrated with what Facebook can do to bully targets and set them up for emotional distress when they're trying to get help from emotional distress. So we created an alternative a community at an alternative place that's non-Facebook or non-meta called Safe Harbor. And we got that launched in 2021. And it's a self-sustaining um, conversation place, sharing of stories. But we have a moderator there to, to um, try and keep it from going off the rails and turning into a uh, re-traumatizing session for people or things like that. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, rec I recorded, um, well... We, we developed more services for employers. Ruth taught me uh, from her clinical experience. This is very clinically infused uh, an intervention for offenders. We call it Respectful Conduct Clinic. And I've done that with uh, several high-profile academics and um, whose egos are limitless. And <laughs> so we do that. And then I recorded um, education modules in the spirit of COVID and remote learning and remote work um, that unions can now, uh, rather than have me come on site and do the training, uh, they can do it by just purchasing these modules so that all members can more quickly recognize bullying and be familiar with it. And then I have specialty team training modules to create a what's called a and I learned this from our um, a joint friend, Ellen Cobb, um, the Canadians and the Brits call it mental health first aid teams. I used to call them expert teams, the experts in workplace bullying. But the truth is they are the emotional crisis first responders. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then they provide ongoing support and education after that. So I'm very excited that I recorded those and we're selling those. So I'm trying to do less live things that uh, require my time because that former division of labor that we discussed before uh, has changed to, um, and, I, and I thank you for this, David. I'm pretty sure you told me, you know, if you wanted, you could become an expert witness. And I didn't, I didn't know nothing about being an expert witness. And <laughs> off I went and 
first case was in, it's totally unsolicited that lawyers came to me and they came very infrequently starting in 2005. But now it's turned into a, a cottage industry that gives me very little opportunity to actually come out except to deliver university. I'm totally underground uh, doing these legal cases. I have multiple cases. I'm now at 70 cases counting and rising and the cases just keep flowing in. So um, I'm doing my part. I'm helping maybe one plaintiff at a time, but, and we can talk about this in the next, in the sequel, which we need to get to. Maybe you can build case law at some, in some way, shape yes. or form where we can, we can help shape the law. But yeah. that's where I'm spending a majority of my time now. And thank goodness the court allows depositions by Zoom and even trial appearances by Zoom so far. Well, as, as we know, the law has been lagging behind many of the other professional and academic disciplines in recognizing the harm and the injustice of bullying, the abuse of bullying. And that will be part of our, our later conversation. But I, I want to say that in, in listening to this discussion and obviously being aware of the work that you folks have done over these years and looking over the website recently in preparation for our conversation today, uh, what you've done is create information um, guidance for just about any stakeholder who wants to take bullying at, at work seriously. Um, and a lot of that material is for free or at very low cost. Um, some of it's going to cost people money, but as it should in terms of real expertise. And I'm also going to editorialize a little bit here because this is for folks who are listening who might be not be following the work we've been doing over the years. But uh, at times I've had people wrongfully suggest that you folks are making megabucks off of this work. Oh, and, boy. Uh, yeah. Yes. And I've had to say, no, I am not going to share any private details about your finances. But as you've shared with us during this conversation, um, there have been struggles. There are ups and downs. And uh, the, the, the fact that you have produced such prodigious amounts of work to help people has not always translated into income at a level that, in my opinion, would be uh, minimally reflective of the contributions you've made. So I just wanted to put that out there as an observation to people who, uh, you know, Gary, you've talked a lot about sort of trying to monetize some of this. I just want to underscore, no, th this is not about seven and eight figure type of, of incomes coming in. This is about trying to make a living. And I think we have to make that point very clear. Um, but I also want to throw out this point because this work has been hard. Uh, it is challenging. Um, it, it can be very emotional and draining. However, I know that you folks, as I said a few minutes ago, have literally helped to save lives. How does it feel? to be amongst the more senior members of this workplace anti-bullying community, knowing that you have helped people through some of the worst episodes of their lives and, and sometimes even saved them from 
uh, self-harm or from the kind of debilitating conditions that could accelerate someone's demise. Do you realize what you've done to help people? Ruth, why don't you start with that? Well, David, our focus has been on targets and it always will be. And very few times we get letters or comments from people that we saved their lives and it's greatly appreciated, but those times are far and few. But we keep doing the work in the hopes that it will help people. And that's our main goal. And that's, I think that's what we are about. We're not about making money. We live in a rented house. We don't live in a McMansion. (laughs) And we do what we do because that's what we love doing. And... I guess that's all I have to say. Yeah. It's always been about targets. I Now, I'm the one in contact with the outside world more so than Ruth in the sense that I do hear the thanks that come in. Yeah, it's it's few and far between. That's true. But I'm not looking for it. So when I see it, it's, it's just a golden moment. And... I'm, I'm always telling people at university at the end when, and several have launched other initiatives in other countries, New Zealand and Canada come to mind from having taken university and, and working with us. That's our ultimate legacy is to leave behind a younger generation of people who can carry on the work but do it with a seriousness, a purpose, and not just trying to make a buck. I, I'm not. I don't want people committed to poverty. I'm not saying that. But we've we learned over the years that um, bullying is decimating economically to targets. There's health harm. There's loss of social support harm to to help ameliorate their stress. But most importantly, when they're they're displaced, they've lost job, and it's really hard to get back. And I know that from the legal cases I'm involved with. So targets, targets don't have a lot of money. So they're not a group to go and try and gouge and get money from. So I tell the the people that take our university, this work will at best feed your soul if Mm -hmm. you get that chance. If you do honorable work and you treat people right. You know, it's funny. I I do this as a joke in university, but now I'm going to not do it as a joke. It's really it's most it's most um, pleasing when gratitude comes from complete strangers and they say, you don't know that I've been tracking your work for a decade and thank you for all you do. And or you have or that silly little book bully at work mistitled because the publisher couldn't handle bullying. Oh, we didn't even talk about <laughs> our books. We put out a couple books. Yeah. Uh, but the, but the point is, the point is that. Um, they say it saved our lives, and and you're right, and that's very nice. But I want to read you from the forward. Oh, speaking of being the old man in the field, I've written several forwards for people, forwards to their books, which gives me pleasure because I feel like I'm putting my stamp of approval on the next generation and others. So I I enjoy that work. Plus, I get to see the new books that are coming out, too. And our friend Maureen Duffy, which I didn't mention, 
she had she was not one of the original academics or anything, but Maureen Duffy and Len Sperry and their books on mobbing and overcoming mobbing and talking about trauma-informed therapy have have formed also a central tenet to our work. So thanks to Maureen. You can hear me do podcasts with Maureen. We just love Maureen. Yes, she's part of this big family. Yes, in a very yes. Important way. But when Bob Sutton is not part of our family. Bob Sutton is a very uh, successful professor of management at Stanford Business School and has written easily 30 books in a, on a variety of topics. Well, he stumbled into bullying when he wrote a book called No Asshole Rule. And what he stumbled into was a... Um, a bunch of targets descending upon him for help and advice for which he was not prepared. And he sent them all to us just as Oprah had done prior (laughs) a decade prior or more than a decade. And he, and he was thankful for that because we had done some media appearances together over his book with his book, advancing his book. And he was, he's very kind. So he agreed when we wrote the employer book, The Bully-Free Workplace by Wiley. Wiley published the book. They invited us to write it. We didn't solicit it. Sutton agreed to write a forward, and he doesn't write forwards for others. So I want this read the first sentence of the forward, Ruth. I don't know if I can. The first sentence of the forward reads, Gary and Ruth are heroes. And there then, you go. That's it. There you go. Yeah, take it to the bank, but it goes a lot farther. <laughs> a lot farther than any dollar. Well, how about if we uh, wrap up our conversation at that point for now? Um, I, I hope this has given people an opportunity to understand and appreciate the history of what you've done. I hope despite challenges, it has also inspired people to do some of this work with the kind of integrity and care which it demands, because you two have really been exemplars of that for all of us. Um, uh, I I can only say that uh, the last uh, 25, for me, years now, right, almost 22, 24 years, 1998, I mean, for me, this work has also been very, not only career shaping, but life shaping, right? You can't jump in with both feet on this and not be changed by it. I think in some good ways, mostly good ways, there, there's some ups and downs that come with it, but it's almost, you know, the bottom line is that you get to make a contribution that hopefully matters to people. And, and both of you have done that in ways that uh, you may not ever know, you know, just like a teacher doesn't know how much good work they've done, hopefully, you know, the bad teachers, I guess, kind of scaring away students. But if you're a good teacher, you've got all these people out there who have benefited by your work. And similarly, there are all these people who just read a piece of what you did. It may have sustained them. It may have saved them. It may have given them some guidance. It may have given them some validation. Uh, there are possibly uh, some employers out there who decided to take the high road because of the work that you've done. And so uh, as someone who has benefited by not only our friendship, but by your work for the, these many years, I want to thank both of you. Uh, you know, we're practically family at this point. And uh, I want to say, you know, how much your work has meant to the world 
and I look forward to more contributions and more collaborations. So blessings to both of you, my friends. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode. Until then, please visit us at workplacebullying.org. You'll find some great resources there for current and past targets, years of research, including our WBI national surveys and our books. Also at the site, you can learn about my expert witness services, Workplace Bullying University training for professionals, and the Respectful Conduct Clinic to deal with identified offenders. And new in 2021 is a community dedicated to workplace bullying that you can join called Safe Harbor. Thanks again for listening. Remember, work shouldn't hurt.